So this morning I'd like to go back to the foundations of our practice and to talk about and explore this capacity that we call mindfulness. And I'm, in doing that, I'm, I'm partly energized and inspired by preparing for the day long in a few days on the third foundation of mindfulness, on mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And so uh, what I want to do today is to give an overview about mindfulness, to explore what it is, why it's important, and what the basic guidance is in terms of the core teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness. What are those four four foundations? Uh, What do we learn in working with those four foundations? And how can we take these teachings and instructions to inspire our practice and to give ourselves some um, further guidance and really further further energy uh, for being really interested in our practice. As I mentioned uh, in the guidance for the sitting this morning, I think it's quite a common experience for us to get in a little bit of a comfortable rut in our meditation where we can generally relax, generally be present, uh, but we don't don't always uh, see so clearly. We don't always look so clearly and sometimes we get into a kind of nice and pleasant calm which feels kind of good. We feel refreshed but we don't necessarily feel, oh, I'm really um, looking clearly and seeing more clearly with my practice. How many can relate to that as a tendency at times? Right? And so one of the ways to work with that is to increase what we call the factor of investigation, which is connected with interest and connected with curiosity. Uh, really it's curiosity in the very nature of our consciousness, our experience, our mind, and the possibilities of greater freedom and the possibilities of really uh, touching a profound freedom more and more, and having that be more and more present. And that interest can be developed in part by really looking carefully or more carefully at the nature of mindfulness and the basic instructions. So I'd like to talk generally about mindfulness for a short time and then look uh, briefly at each of the four foundations. And I'm thinking of when I come back um, after a hiatus when Sylvia is teaching to maybe go into more detail. And those of you who, who come to the day-longs, the third and fourth foundation, will have, will have depth in <clears throat> looking into those particular aspects of, of, uh, of mindfulness practice. So mindfulness, first of all, to situate it broadly, is the core tool that's used to support freedom and the process of learning in our practice. Mindfulness is the capacity to be 
alert and awake to what's happening in the present moment and to know what's happening in a clear way. It's connected with other dimensions of our practice in that it involves the continual looking at what's happening experience now, moment to moment. And over time, it leads to wisdom. And with wisdom, we're able both to see our experience more and more clearly, and we're able to um, intervene wisely when, for example, um, unhelpful patterns develop or we're in difficult states, mind states, states of thought and emotion or of the body, and we need to in some ways respond. Mindfulness is really, as it were, gives us both the information about what's happening in the present moment, and over time, it's the way we study our experience. And over time, it leads to wisdom, which is really our guide in life. You know? It also, over time, opens us up to increasingly to compassion. Because with mindfulness, we look at everything. We don't just look in a sort of detached way at, the, you know, at thoughts and emotions and so forth. We actually hang out and, in a sense, participate directly with our experience through what the Chinese call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So with mindfulness, when there's loss or grief, we're with ourselves, as it were. We are empathic through mindfulness. We are with ourselves, not in a detached way, but in a very direct way, where I am with my pain, or my loss, or my grief, or my fear, or my sadness. And so out of that comes um, further development of empathy and of compassion, uh, initially towards ourselves, but as we practice mindfulness more and more, we also bring those capacities outward. And so developing those capacities in relation to our own experience also opens up the possibility of empathy and compassion for others, for others whom we encounter both directly and those who are maybe we learn about through the news or through study. And I think it opens up to um, quite a deep and, and wonderful compassion. And again, we often say that the way that this practice develops is as uh, a bird we fly with the wings of wisdom and compassion. And mindfulness is really the core tool with which those capacities develop. There are other tools that we use or other practices such as loving-kindness practice or compassion or joy practice. And there are, other, uh, there are other techniques and so forth. But mindfulness is at the center. You know, in the classical text on mindfulness, which you might like to read if you haven't already, the text called the uh, Discourse on Mindfulness, the Sati Patana Sutta. Sutta means discourse, sati means mindfulness, and patana means something like foundations or establishments of. And you can find that text um, in many places. It's in the uh, collection called the Majjhima Nikaya, which is 
in the bookstore, it's the large brown volume, which is where it is found historically. You can also find it online in a number of different translations. Uh, one of the place, one of the websites which has the quite a collection of translations is called Access to Insights, which also has a number of essays. Uh, and it's helpful to read it. It's only about 10 pages long. And you can read the text and it can be inspiring. There's also a beautiful book which came out about, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization uh, by a German a monk scholar, practitioner, named Analayo. We've given uh, a free copy of this to everyone who does all four of the <laughs> day-longs on the Foundations of Mindfulness. So if you're not part of that, you'll have to buy it. <laughs> but it's a, it's a state-of-the-art scholarly book by a practitioner. It, and it takes a 10-page text and gives about 250 pages of commentary, linking it with um, a number of uh, other texts in the discourses of the Buddha, commentaries and contemporary psychology and so forth. So it's quite a wonderful book. <coughs> so mindfulness is this core tool. In that text, the Buddha says that mindfulness is the basic tool for the purification of beings and for the ending of suffering. You know, we understand suffering not simply as the presence of the unpleasant or pain, but that reactivity, the reactions, the, the reactions both to the pleasant and to the unpleasant. That is really, we might say, the um, resistance to the present moment. That's really what we call suffering in, in the Buddhist tradition. And mindfulness is taken to be the core tool that helps us to, to end suffering. So, what is mindfulness in a little more, in a little more depth? It, it is the learning to be with present experience. It is present-centered. We are not so much in the past and the future. It also involves a clarity of mind. When we're mindful, we're not just present-centered in a vague way, but we actually know what's happening. And this is where it, it helps so much in our learning process that we, we look carefully at experience. And when we're practicing mindfulness, I think as all of us know, we actually discover things. When we're just paying attention, almost like a participatory scientist, <laughs> one who's a, who has this deep interest in knowing what's happening, but it's my life, so I'm involved. And we're not at a distance where we can see clearly, but we're involved and I feel my experience. And we can have these amazing insights. Oh, um, look at what happens when my mind becomes angry. Oh, I never looked at it before. Wow, look at that. You know, here's what my body does with anger. And you can really have that sense. You know, I've sometimes told the story of the retreat where I was angry for 10 days in a row, you know, um, 16 hours a day being angry. And um, I was instructed to be mindful of the anger. And so I looked at my anger over and over again, and it was like doing a PhD research project on my anger. <laughs> you know, I learned all sorts of things, you know, just about 
the way it arose, all the different forms it took, you know. You might think anger is just this one thing. No. It was like six different varieties, right? Anger is just a concept, right? There, there was petty, petty reactivity. There was, um, <clears throat> there was anger that took over the body. There was uh, self-centered anger. There was um, anger that took the form of being like an Old Testament prophet, you know. They have done me wrong, and they will pay. <laughs> you know, uh, it would be, be like that sometimes. And I could study what happened in the body, you know, what went on, went on in the body. What, is my, what does my body do with anger? All the, in a lot of different forms. And studying it over those days, and I took some notes, and it was fascinating. It was very, very interesting. So we have in mindfulness the capacity to see clearly, see clearly what's happening, to note. So one of the main techniques that we use in mindfulness is to note, oh, there's um, planning. Oh, anger is happening. Okay. Oh, there's uh, remembering. You know, and we sometimes guide ourselves to give a label for the top five or the top ten visitors, the top ten uh, thoughts that we have, you know, planning, remembering, fantasizing, financial discussion, <laughs> you know, relationship discussion number one, relationship discussion number two, you know, whatever it might be, discussion with person X, discussion with person Y. And we give a label to those so we can see more clearly uh, what's going on. And that's a really significant part of mindfulness. Mindfulness is also uh, non-reactive. We increasingly, when we're mindful, we can be with reactivity. We can, I can be with that anger, but I'm not, through my mindfulness, adding to the reactivity. I'm, in other words, I'm not pushing away or grabbing hold. I'm just present. Mindfulness has that quality of just being able to be present. So it's, um, in a way, we, it's, very, it's magical in a way, I can be with myself being reactive in a non-reactive way. It's quite interesting. What, what this means is that we really, uh, in a sense, develop a relationship to whatever is occurring in our experience. And this is actually what permits a lot of learning. Uh, one meditation teacher, Stephen Levine, says, we don't, um, uh, we don't relate, as it were, from a particular state of mind, which is often the case when it's taken us over. I don't relate from this state of mind or this state of body. I relate to it. There's a relationship to whatever's happening. And it's actually a very helpful guidance to say, What's happening now, and how am I relating to it? Am I seeing it? Am I caught in it? And so forth. And so we can do that. Uh, increasingly, we relate to what's happening in our experience, and this permits us to uh, both see clearly, not to be so caught by it. So the mindfulness is non-reactive. It's also, in, in, in that same way, non-judgmental. We can be with what's happening, and we just say, oh, okay, that's happening. You know, we just notice uh, the 
American born monk uh, who has had an influence on a lot of people at Spirit Rock, Chan Semedo, who's in his mid-70s now, who was a student along with Jack Kornfield of the Thai teacher Achan Cha. He has a very nice phrase for mindfulness. He says, mindfulness is just noticing it's like this. And that's non-judgmental, non-reactive. Oh, um, violent, aggressive thoughts. Oh, it's like this. <laughs> you know, the body really tense. Oh, it's like this. Um, my heart really sad. Oh, it's like this. And that's the spirit. That's the spirit of our practice. So it's present-centered. It is clearly seeing, non-reactive, non-judgmental. As mindfulness becomes mature, it also has a heartfelt quality, that we hold everything with, with that kind and wise heart. That's what, that's what mindfulness is. A lot of that comes from experience. It's as it were, we have seen a lot, and we essentially have compassion more and more for the challenges of being a human being, having a mind and body and heart. There are challenges, you know, and when we look clearly at our experience and that of others, we can notice that, we can see that. So why is this looking so important? Why does looking really help us? One of the reasons that the mindfulness can be so important for knowing ourselves and developing freedom is that we, in a way, move out of the dominance of thoughts and storylines and interpretations. And as we've looked at a lot in these morning gatherings, we, in a way, get down to more direct experience. We see experience more directly, and we can be with the sensations of the body, with the emotions and the thoughts, and not so much caught or lost or spending most of our time with particular storylines. And we, in particular, can notice when thoughts arise and when they take power over us. I've mentioned from time to time that when I do one-on-one work with people, the most common guidance that I give people is watch out for the stories that you're believing. That this, that having negative storylines and believing them is very closely linked with suffering. I think we know that, right? It's it's obvious where where there might be people inclinations, let's say, to depression, there's often can be a very negative storyline there. And with mindfulness, we start to see how the different states of mind arise. We see uh, we can be with the body more directly, we can be with sensations more directly, and we notice how that can give rise to interpretations, to storylines, to the uh, to what we call the proliferation of thoughts and emotions. And I, I've told that story a few times, the one that Sylvia tells, of uh, trying to do a retreat at the Zen Center and calling up and trying to reach Steve, who handles the uh, reservations, 
and not getting Steve and saying, oh, they say, oh, call back three hours later. She calls back three hours later. Oh, is Steve there? And so, I'm sorry, Steve is again. He was just out just a minute ago. Sorry. And Sylvia, and Sylvia said, okay, when should I call? Well, call tomorrow morning. And then she calls again tomorrow morning. Oh, Steve just walked out again. <laughs> and, and Sylvia says, I guess that means that I'm not supposed to do this retreat. And in proper Zen style, the, the, the receptionist says, no, I think it just means that Steve is not here. <laughs> and, and, you know, if Sylvia has that pattern, then all of, all of us have that pattern. Right? Or a similar pattern where we, where we jump to thoughts, and they often can, they often can be ones that uh, bring us some pain or some suffering. And with mindfulness, we track thoughts, and we're, it's particularly valuable for noticing the arising as close to the origin as possible of body sensations, thoughts, the whole range of experience. And we can notice how the mind proliferates. And we can also notice what are thoughts, emotions, body reactions that are actually not so helpful. You know? And we customarily link these under uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. You know? When do we have really angry, negative, reactive thoughts? And what happens when those proliferate? Where do we go with that? That's what we study in mindfulness. What happens when we have uh, thoughts and feelings that are connected with greed, with really wanting something, with being maybe obsessive, you know? And we can watch that and watch where that goes. And we can also see how we go from particular experiences into what we might call delusive thoughts. How we might be afraid we might have some anxiety or fear about something happening. Let's say that um, I'm concerned about, uh, you know, I'm concerned about uh, um, a public speak, speaking event that I'll have in three days. And I notice anxiety and I start imagining worst case scenarios and I build those up and I just get preoccupied with that so that I really build that up. And then let's suppose I actually do an okay job, but in my mind I've done a bad job and I have that thought and it just proliferates and it gets into all of my self-judgments from the last 40 years and I get into a funk for two weeks or two months, right? And I'm caught in self-judgment. With mindfulness, we develop the capacity to track that and not go there so quickly. Right? or to notice that it's happening. And when we study it enough, we learn our core patterns, particularly our core patterns leading to suffering. And we know them well enough, and it becomes a core way that we don't go there. We study the mechanisms of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know? And we also open up to the beauty of uh, awareness, wisdom, and a mind that is not caught. Mindfulness opens up to those beautiful states as well. Opens up to clear seeing, to the open heart, to the uh, mind that is not caught in our own uh, proliferations. And uh, again, we do that for ourselves, 
and we bring that out into our relations with others. When we can see our own minds cl more clearly, we also see others more clearly. And we're not so caught in their stuff. <laughs> so mindfulness is very helpful for navigating with others as well as ourselves. Basically because we've studied the nature of the mind. The mind, the heart, the body. And we know it well. Yeah. And so it's huge. So in the teachings, the instructions are not simply to be mindful. Okay, mindfulness is good, be mindful. Bye. <laughs> That's not it. We're actually instructed to be mindful in particular ways. And probably we could have uh, added to some of the uh, foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha gives. But the Buddha gives four, and they're pretty basic. We probably could have some more, but the four that he gives are first, mindfulness of the body. Second, mindfulness of feeling tone. Third, mindfulness of what's usually translated as mind, but it's better maybe translated as thoughts and emotions, or you might say mind and heart. And the fourth is um, really the mindfulness of some of the different patterns of experience. So I like to think of the first three as mindfulness of the different constituents of experience. The body, thoughts, emotions, and feeling tone, which is the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which has a very special role, which I'll come to in just a moment. And then having looked carefully at these uh, aspects of experience, ranging from the more gross to the more subtle, you know, moving from the experiences of the body to the sometimes more subtle aspects of thought and emotion, we have looked at the constituents of experience, and then we can say, okay, having done that, let me look at the patterns of experience. And we can do this. Uh, in the classical teachings, these are primarily patterns that we're guided to look at through teachings, you know, with the most fundamental maybe being the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, where we look at how does what is suffering like? How does it appear? What are the roots of suffering? How do we let go of suffering and, as it were, work through it? I think we could probably fit in this category what we get maybe from more psychological traditions that are contemporary, which is what are my personal patterns? What are my personal psychological patterns? What do I do when I'm um, triggered? What are my main ways that I get triggered and reactive? What are the ten main patterns that I have? I think we have to become experts on our own patterns. So if we can think of the four foundations as first studying the constituents of experience and then the patterns, that can be, that can be helpful. So the starting point is to develop mindfulness of the body. And this is so crucial to our practice in multiple ways. We typically start with mindfulness of the breath. Um, as a way partly to cultivate the ability to see clearly what's happening, but partly also to stabilize our attention, just to uh, bring us from the state that often is lost in thought or distracted. And so we start with the breath, and we typically do so in a protected environment. In the classical text, the Buddha says, find a place which is secluded, like the foot of a tree, or an empty hut. 
find a suitable location and then sit yourself down and establish your mindfulness. Those are the instructions from almost 2,600 years ago, you know. So, um, so in that context, actually, mindfulness was something people did alone, practicing mindfulness. And they would have Dharma talks uh, where people would come together, but most of the practice you did on your own, the fact that we meditate together in groups is actually a Chinese innovation. That where the Chinese were maybe more communally minded, and they said, we'll meditate in groups. And that wasn't really done in India. It's kind of interesting, you know. We could ask, what kind of innovations will we bring to all of this? Whoops. Will we bring to all this? So we find, anyway, in any case, we find a, a protected environment and we start by mi- being mindful of the breath uh, as a way to open up to mindfulness of the body. So it stabilizes our attention. In our culture, it's particularly important because this is so much of a mental culture becoming more mental and virtual every moment as we speak, right? <laughs> With all the electronic media. Uh, you know, having direct conversations may soon be a thing of the past. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe not. <laughs> I think we have some hope for direct conversations and people relating to each other with, without, <clears throat> without electronic tools being, being possible. So in our culture, though, we often uh, have really highlighted thought. I, that was certainly my case in my situation when I was learning meditation. It was a revelation to be able to be mindful of the body and to come back to my senses. That may not be the case for you. You may have developed you know, yoga practices or practices where you had mindfulness of the body, or you may have been less disembodied than I was when I started meditation. And that was, I would say, disembodied, maybe that's not the most non-judgmental and caring way to speak of it, but, but it was, um, I was not really aware of my body. And I would be with my body, uh, uh, typically not so much. Even though I had been very physical, was an athlete, and uh, did a lot of hiking, and I've told the story sometimes of when I was a student and living, I lived in Germany for a year, and I would walk uh, from a farm I was living on to study German, and one day, as I was noticing that I was thinking all the time, I hadn't really learned meditation yet. Um, I was noticed I was thinking all the time, and then I said, "I'm just like consciousness on a pole," <laughs> you know, which was a little shocking to reflect on that. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. I am not aware of my body at all, right? As I walk, I'm just thinking all the time, and and so in our culture, mindfulness of the body can be revolutionary. It can help us to be present to our body. I personally think being present to our body is connected with being present to the earth body and connected with really relating in a different way to the earth. Uh, I think there are connections there. And so being mindful of the body is, is very important. I find that it's, if we have developed strong mindfulness of the body, it can be there as we go through our days, and it helps us to be mindfulness in the flow of everyday life to a tremendous extent. It's really a key. Otherwise, we are just in our automatic thinking all the time. And we're not necessarily so mindful. But when we're mindful of the body, it in a way 
uh, prevents the automatic monopoly of the mind, of the thinking process. And so we learn mindfulness of the body. In the text, there are quite a number of ways. Typically, we learn three main ways. We learn to be mindful of the breath. We learn to be mindful of the body in different postures. And we also learn to be mindful as we go about different activities, to be mindful as we're walking, to be mindful as we are eating, to be mindful as we are just sitting right now. And so mindfulness of the body, very, very crucial, very fundamental training. In a way, when we are mindful of the breath, we are remembering that all the time. And again, I think very particularly useful in this culture because of the way, because of the dominance of thinking and of virtual reality. So the second foundation is mindfulness of feeling tone. It's the mindfulness of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And it's a very, very interesting area. And I talk about this from time to time, but it's, it's, uh, if we were to do this, we would notice especially when, in my experience, am I feeling something as pleasant? Now, anything that occurs in experience, it is said, has a valence of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It can be very, new, very uh, pleasant, very unpleasant, or mildly pleasant or unpleasant, or more or less in the middle area. And so we can look especially when the sense of pleasant or unpleasant gets big. And we can, in our practice, have our radar out for any time there's a sense of pleasant or unpleasant that's strong. I like this, I don't like this, my body is un- has unpleasant feelings, I really don't like this thinking that I'm involved in, you know, or these emotions. And we just stop back, we just step back, and we notice, okay, let me just be with the pleasant. Let me just be with the unpleasant. Eating meals, tremendous opportunity for mindfulness of feeling tone. You know, to be, to take a silent meal and to be with the food moment to moment, just noticing, oh, this is pleasant. Oh, this is not so pleasant, you know, and and just to be with it. You know, um, I've sometimes had uh, meditation groups where we brought in chocolate and studied mindfulness of pleasant, of, of the pleasant feeling tone. You can do that. After this gathering, you have my permission to go buy chocolate, or go have something that you find wonderful and study the pleasant feeling tone. And again, it's very much like the example I was giving of studying anger. It's so fascinating to watch what the mind does with pleasant and unpleasant. And again, the factor of mindfulness potentially brings in this dynamic of interest, which is so crucial to our practice. We, and again, it's a danger for so many of us that our practice can become somewhat rote. We just sit down, do, kind of do what we've done before, and bringing in some of these instructions can really make us interested, can really bring in the factor of curiosity, interest, fascination, and, um, and the, uh, the joy of really studying our experience. We can even have, sometimes I know that joy actually become, the joy of learning becomes more dominant sometimes 
than what is actually happening moment to moment. I can remember being on retreat and loving the study of experience so much that one morning, I remember I woke up, I hadn't slept well, I was really irritated, and I was so happy. (laughs) And I said, oh, irritation, oh, my body doesn't feel good. And there was some overriding contentment just from the study of experience and the learning. It was so, it was, it was revelatory, of course. My gosh, joy is not connected with necessarily just having pleasant experiences. There can be some deeper joy, and this is really what all of this practice is pointing to, actually, that the deep joy of life doesn't come from having this experience or that experience, this pleasant experience or that pleasant, un, that pleasant experience, or that pleasant thought or this good emotion. It actually comes from the way we, re- we relate to everything. It comes, from an, uh, it comes from a heart and a mind that can be free and open increasingly with everything. That's where the deeper joy comes. In other words, we don't look for the deeper happiness externally or in this or that state. We look for it in how we relate to everything. And we can relate to everything with openness and uh, a sense that everything's workable and that there can be this confidence in my own wisdom, clarity, and good heart. And that's where I, I rest in, not so much in this or that experience. So that's a huge change, right? Because we are mostly all conditioned to try to find happiness in getting something or having this or that state of affairs or this relationship or this job or this home or whatever it is. And increasingly, the practice points to the deepest happiness being something that's actually independent of conditions, which is radical, right? And, and we can study this through the mindfulness. We can really study this. Studying the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral is fascinating. We can also see how if we're not mindful of the pleasant, we will tend to grab after it. And that can go, again, can proliferate in all sorts of ways. If we are not mindful of the unpleasant, we will tend to compulsively push it away. We can study how that works, the unpleasant in the body, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant interactions with someone else. And we tend to proliferate in our minds. With mindfulness of the unpleasant, we see increasingly the links between the pleasant or the unpleasant and proliferating thoughts and emotions and we don't actually have to go there so much. It's tremendously powerful. You know, let me, can I hold it just for... Just a word you've used several times that I'm having trouble with. Yeah. Proliferation. Prolif- what does proliferation mean? Thank you. Um, proliferation means, it's a translation of a word called papancha, uh, which is often translated as conceptual proliferation. It means basically that something happens and we might say we are triggered and thoughts and emotions uh, arrive with speed and a cascading quality. <laughs> so we might have, um, uh, and, and it's not mindful. The proliferation refers to something where we're not conscious of it and thoughts proliferate. You know, and particularly they would proliferate when we have a strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant experience. Is that? Help, help get there? Yeah. 
start and snowball, and typically without us much watching it. You know, like again, I can have, let's suppose I have a difficult interaction with my boss at work. It's unpleasant. I come back home. I start proliferating. Maybe I find a coworker who wants to pr proliferate with me. <laughs> no. <Yeah>. Mutual proliferation. <laughs> you know, very common experience. So with the feeling tone, I start noticing that. I start noticing the, the, the tendency, and it's one of the reasons why when we just notice pleasant or unpleasant carefully, we'll notice how that, how that uh, can happen. One of my Tibetan teachers, he actually asked people to create mild pain by like pressing on their hand and just noticing what the mind does when you hold that for a while. It's a little, we don't, we don't generally do that. We think there's, in our, in our lineage, we think there's probably enough pain arises without having to increase it. But you could, you could try it. Just put, press your hand really tightly and notice do you, I mean, I can notice I'm a little bit on edge. I'm, you know, how long is this going to last? You know, um, you know, why is he doing this? This, you know, this isn't good. No. <laughs> or whatever. The mind can, that's proliferation. <laughs> okay, so, so we do that. The third foundation is quite similar with thoughts and emotions. We especially track them. In the beginning of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, it's just really noticing that they're there. Noticing what they are, starting to get an inventory of the thoughts and emotions. So I teach a lot on judgmental mind, as you know, and the beginning instructions I give it to people are just try to notice every time or as much as possible uh, when judgments come through. Notice the judgments, just track them, make a mental note, okay, there's a judgment. And you can do the same thing with different mental thoughts, uh, different mental events, different emotions. Just notice when they're there. For me, when I was first practicing, I was planning all the time. And for me to actually track, oh, there's planning. Oh, there's planning again. Oh, there's planning again. I'll have to really notice planning next time. <laughs> oh, that's planning also. <laughs> you know, and just to track that, that's really what we do. You know, and we can also then, part of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions is to be with them as they manifest in the body, like with the anger. I could be with that in the body. I could track that. I could notice where it goes. I could notice when it starts, when it finishes. Sometimes when you're studying persistent patterns, it can be helpful to take notes, you know, after a meditation, because you can really, it's real, I mean, it's very important to sort of see what these are. What's, what, what, how does my anger manifest? What are my most persistent patterns? What's my top 10, you know? What's my top 10 list of themes? I think we should all know that. Of, you know, we should know that, and then when we can have labels for them so that, that when they come, we don't get taken away by them so much. So very fundamental. And then I'll, I'll finish the fourth foundation. Um, could go into a lot of detail on it, but I'll, I'll say that it's looking at these patterns. And so I would bring into this looking at how the personal patterns manifest. You know, this is something we can study both in meditation and off the cushion, um, what are my main patterns of getting triggered? You know, when do I get become judgmental of myself or another person? What triggers it? What are the larger patterns? So this can sometimes take mindfulness, sustained mindfulness in the moment. You have a difficult relationship with, with a given person. 
What are your patterns of becoming reactive with that person? Some of this you can do with reflection, thinking, okay, what are the typical triggers? What, uh, when, when that person does what to me, do I get triggered? You know, uh, when that person makes a sarcastic comment about something I hold dear, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And I notice, oh, the body heat increasing, thoughts increasing, and I can, um, to really notice that pattern. So I encourage um, having mindfulness expeditions for family gatherings. <laughs> really say, go to, a, go to a gathering and have as your main goal, put 80% of your attention into tracking your patterns and 20% into interacting. No one will notice a thing. <laughs> You may need to adjust the ratio a little bit, you know, if, you, if it's not working. But, you, but seriously, the, the point is to really study our own experience like that. What are the patterns? So we want to study our personal patterns, and we can bring in, in the text, that we are, we're encouraged to look at some of the patterns that are taught through teachings, the main one being the Four Noble Truths. If we took, and this is one of my first mindfulness instructions, which I got over 30 years ago from Joseph Goldstein, he said, really be on the lookout for any moment of suffering as reactivity. When it comes, track it, and then notice, is there attachment? Is there grasping? Because that's what the teaching says. If there's suffering, there will be some grasping or attachment. Notice it. And then we could say, if there's grasping, can I let go of the grasping? And what helps me? So this would be looking at the broader patterns through a teaching. And you know, when we come back to this, I'll give more detail on that. But I want, I want to give some time for our talking together. So just to say that these are four core ways. They look at, the, we bring the power of mindfulness to these core constituents of experience with, interestingly, this also attention to the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, this fairly subtle dimension of um, evaluation. We look at those really carefully, and then we start looking at the broader patterns. And it's this sustained, uh, sustained application of mindfulness which has the power to let us know what our experience is like, both personally and more universally. Let us know what our patterns are that are connected with suffering. And through the mindfulness, we actually become more aware of and spacious in relation to all the constituents of our experience, less compulsive, less habitual, and it opens up the space of choice. Do I really want to go there? And ultimately a freedom, which is our aim. So questions or reflections? Please. Yeah, I know that last Sunday you did a talk on um, that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering if you could um, give that talk here some yeah. Wednesday morning. Um, that was, that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, am I willing to give the talk on pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which I don't believe I've given here, right? No. no. Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was so easy. <laughs> 
That's yeah. very pleasant. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a fascinating area. Now, I get, here I gave a five-minute version of it. And to, get, to look at it in depth for 45 minutes is really, really fascinating. Because, again, a lot of the import of all this is to increase our interest, curiosity, and, in, and, and um, capacity for investigation and inquiry, which is an important way that our practice gets energized. And we, and we can bring it into all of our daily life. You know? So you're at a discussion, you're at an interaction with someone, and part of you can be tracking what's going on in your experience, particularly if there's some challenging experience. Yeah, thank you. Please. Yeah, hi. Yeah. Um, could you give your definition of being judgmental? Yeah. <laughs> also, you said that when we're reacting to something, we're our hearts start to beat or we start to get. Yeah. Yeah. So two questions. One about defining judgment and the other about um, uh, noticing uh, reactions and how is that linked to something which we, in this culture we take generally to be positive, which is to have a passion for something. Okay. So I distinguish being judgmental from being discerning. And so um, to be judgmental, as, as in the way we usually in English use the word judgmental. So it would, I, I talk about it sometimes as a kind of noticing linked with a reaction about it. So I can notice someone acting in a way which we might typically call obnoxious, right? I might use other words. Obnoxious might be a more judgmental way of saying it, but I could probably use that word more neutrally. And I could, let's say I notice someone at a party acting in a certain way, which is, um, I could say rude, let's say rude, okay? And I'm noticing a certain behavior, and there's a certain discernment there, which is potentially helpful. And then I have a reaction that that person is so rude, you know, you know, drank too much or whatever, and really essentially become judgmental towards that person. There's a reaction there. I could also potentially see the same thing and come at it from compassion and be with that person, notice that person, and possibly even intervene and say, you know, you know, um, uh, especially if it's a friend, let's say, I could intervene. So does that help make that distinction? Um, there's the, the being judgmental has the reactivity, which in other words has a charge, there's commentary, I'm, and it's, it's a version of pushing away, it's a version of aversion. So, and again, I could be, I could um, notice, let's say, um, we, in English, we use the word judgment often to, me, to mean something non-judgmental, like I judged that it would be a hot day today. Okay. And so um, I could be reactive about the weather. It's a hot day today. Can't the weather get its act together? <laughs> that would be judgmental towards the weather, which would be, you know, unwise stance, but, but um, so uh, are we getting there with that? Well, I'm confused just a little bit, like, if you just, if, if something's going on or someone says, says something that you won't agree with, yeah. are you being, and you're saying, I would never do that, 
The key is whether one's reactive. Now, let's say a, someone, let's say that you, that you see something, let's say you, you disagree with something. You can disagree without being judgmental or you can be judgmental. It's, it's kind of maybe most obvious with something political, right? I can uh, say the last, you know, the president before Obama, he tortured people. You know, there was a torture regime, right? I could say that, and I could say that and be really judgmental, or I could say that uh, without, I could still have a, a moral evaluation, but I wouldn't be judgmental. Okay. So being non-judgmental doesn't mean uh, ending uh, disagreements or ending moral stances, but it's, it's more that we're reactive. And you know, in politics, that reactivity translates into a lot of uh, opposition, polarization, demonization, and so forth. Okay, is that, are we getting there? Okay, very good. Okay, and then in terms of the reaction, um, looking at reactivity in relation to passion, um, it's complex, complex issue. But the, again, the key, a lot of the key is whether we're mindful and aware and whether the, um, I think the reactive energy is going to be a little more compulsive, automatic, and unconscious. And the energy of passion is going to be, it's coming from a different place, I would say. Um, and it would be, uh, so th this isn't at all about not having feelings or being sort of calm all the time. Meditation is misunderstood. A lot of people try to be calm all the time. I think that's what this is about. It's really, uh, mindfulness is more about really knowing what's happening. So you could say, I'm really mindful. I have a lot of passion for justice coming through, right? And that could be beautiful. Uh, and that would be different from being reactive in that judgmental way, let's say. Okay, thank you. Good question. <laughs> Others, please, yeah. Uh, my question uh, is around noticing patterns and, yeah. and notating yeah. what's going on. And uh, I've, I've done it in meditation. It's simple. You just have a pad of paper next to you and you just write it down. Yeah. Down things that you've been experiencing. But how about out in real life? Yeah. 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 So some some suggestions on note ta uh, note noting. You know, we, we could note uh, both. Um, there are a few kinds of noting. One would be noting in the moment when something's happening, so you know that it's happening. So you could make the mental note without any paper, right? You could so in meditation make the mental note. Okay, there's a judgment. Okay, there's anger. Oh, there is a strong sense of pleasant, right? We can do that noting, which is one, t one type of technique of mindfulness, not the only, only way. Which, and we want to keep that, those notes kind of quiet. We, the main energy should be on really experiencing it directly. The notes are an aid that help us uh, stay on track, really. You know, so we could notice, okay, there's anger. And the note is kind of quiet. It's a little bit like a subtitle in a movie. But if we looked at subtitles only, we wouldn't see the movie. Right? And so we want to 
the, have that note be quiet, and we want most of our attention, as it were, to the movie, <laughs> to the experience. In terms of uh, writing, one technique is to not write during the meditation, but just at, at the end, and don't try to have it be too comprehensive. Just take a, you know, a notes for one or two minutes about what was dominant. And when I was doing the anger noting, there are actually some techniques with noting that came from a teacher named Upandita, Burmese teacher, which would usually, one takes notes at the end of a sitting. And I would, when I was doing the anger work, I would take notes at the end of the sitting and just say, you know, what was dominant? Or, you know, you know so I would say anger, you know, a lot in the body, you know, heat, nausea, you know, and then anger, when I stayed with it, it shifted to sadness, something like that. That's what I would note. And a lot of the learning came from having little notes like that and then coming back and looking at, you know, after three or four days worth, this was in the retreat, and looking at 20 different notes and then seeing the larger patterns. It was, it was amazing to, to do that. I was, oh my gosh, this is the cartography of my anger. It was really, I mean, a lot of uh, joy in learning. So then in daily life, what to do? Um, yeah, I mean, if it's helpful, keep a notepad and just take notes occasionally. Uh, another thing to do would be to, you don't want to have the notes get too much of a project, like a, you know, like a PhD research project. Right? Um, so what you could do, you could take a notepad. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea. Uh, another thing to do would be just to leave some time, maybe later in the day, leave yourself five or ten minutes and just reflect on some of what you experienced. You know, in particular, let's say there was a uh, pattern of interaction where you got triggered and you lost it a little bit. What you could do is reflect and say, okay, what was the trigger? You know, and where did I go? <coughs> and just to reflect on that, that has a, actually a pretty significant role in this learning process. It's not all about what you do on the cushion. You can actually learn a lot by reflection and, and say, okay, what was the catalyst? Because in the moment, we don't always know. Oh, it was when that person made that sarcastic comment about something I hold dear, you know, or the person um, acted in a way in which what I was saying was, seemed to be belittled or not treated seriously, something like that. And then I got triggered. Again, going back to your point, this doesn't at all mean, when we're being mindful, it doesn't at all mean uh, not to respond to something that's wrong or problematic, right? We do that. Okay, I think we're, I think we're at time, so let me bring it to an end, but we can, you can, I'll have some time here if you want to. So, energized a little bit further with mindfulness? Yeah. Yes. Okay, and I will come back and give uh, like a full session to all four of the foundations. And if you want more, uh, those of you who may want to get some of that sooner rather than later can come to the day-longs on the third and fourth foundation. You'll get a whole day on thoughts and emotions. <coughs> I don't know if you want that much, but, <laughs> but it'll, it'll be happening. And so I'll, but I'll come back and give more attention and see what uh, struck you as most interesting or helpful. There's a lot of instruction and maybe just take one or two of those could be just looking at the pleasant or the unpleasant or saying, okay, what are my main, what are my top five uh, 
on my, you know, when I sit and meditate, what are my top five uh, themes? Or what are the five major ways that I get triggered? And, what, and what's the pattern? You could reflect on that and look for that. Okay, so let's just sit now to finish and invite to be present any intention with which you want to go out now. Feel free to go have that chocolate that I mentioned. <laughs> so what's your intention for the next period with, these, with this uh, theme of mindfulness? And then we close by remembering that these practices of mindfulness can be powerful and insightful and freeing for ourselves, but they also can be powerful in terms of our relationships. And these capacities of mindfulness can become ever more strong as a force in the world. Mindfulness has the capacity to be a primary tool to help us work through conflicts, even of the worst kind, and help bring further peace and understanding in the world. So we offer the fruits of our practice out to all of us here in this hall, to all those with whom we're in contact, and increasingly to all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your good attention. And to be continued. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.